Welcome to Cancel Culture, the Business of Law podcast brought to you by Byfield. Welcome back to Council Culture, the Business of Law podcast. Uh, today I am joined by Ben Gerdelsten, Joint Managing Director at Byfield. Hi Ben, how you doing? Not too bad, Meg, how are you doing? I'm all right, it's been very busy for us in the past couple of weeks. Uh, how are you handling your new role? Yeah, it's good. Um, as I've sort of said to everybody, the, the, the trick seems to be making sure you do enough of everything and not too much of anything and trying to get that right. But I'm enjoying it uh, a, a huge amount, it's great. Good. Uh, yeah, no, we're pleased that uh, you and Michael are now, you know, have now stepped into your new role. So, um, yeah, let's see how this goes for the year ahead. But uh, let's jump in uh, in this week's stories. Uh, we're going to start with a story that came out this morning, actually, a very fun one. Um, it was in The Telegraph and in The Times, and um, it was related to, well, Vardag's um, dress code basically uh, i don't know if the audience remembers but a couple of years ago there was a memo internally about uh, lawyers not dressing appropriately uh, to the office and so now the tables have turned uh, <laughs> ayesha vardag has uh, sent a memo uh, telling her lawyers that actually if they wanted to come into the office wearing whatever they like they were more than welcome to um any thoughts on that ben yeah, a couple. I think the, the first thing actually is, 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 is visceral. If you look at the, the, the coverage, it was pretty much at the top of the news agenda on the, on the Times. Yeah. Uh, and that tells you, you know, two things. One is that where law firms are concerned and professional services, any stories about uh, what one wears or one, what doesn't wear automatically make the news, whether we like it or love it. And that has been the case for a decade. Um, and the other thing is, fair play to Vardags, I think they've handled this really, really well. They, you know, not everybody will agree with their dress policy, which I think in summary is, you know, dresses if you're attending Annabelle's. Uh, better that, I think, than if you're attending Weatherspoons. <laughs> but they've handled, it, they've handled it really well. They're confident in who they are. Uh, and uh, I think that reflects uh, so many stories I've seen in the past around firms and dress codes, particularly with sort of front of house staff. People are really awkward and they haven't really tackled it. And, you know, journalists, and I think quite understandably, often go for the, you know, the lowest common denominator about heel size and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And if you are a comms person in a law firm, you can end up, or, a, or an accountancy practice, you can end up in some sort of painful situations, you know, arguing the minutiae of your dress code with uh, a journalist who really just wants to poke fun of you. So fair play to Vardex. It's a really big piece of coverage, and I think they come out of it quite well. Yeah, and no, I agree. And and I don't know. I mean, you've been in the business for long enough, but I don't think ahead of a firm seeing this now, like like I don't think it would have happened ten years ago or, or, or things like that. So it it kind of shows it reflects kind of the change in people's mindsets about you know office culture. It's it's really pertinent. You know, uh, I uh, well, people might seem a long time ago now, given the miserable January day, but last July when it was 40 degrees or, or whatever it was, uh, I did notice on the tube a lot of guys in work shirts and reasonably smart shorts, a bit like I think they do in Australia mm -hmm. in the summer. Uh, and I put a tweet out just saying, I've noticed this, what do people think? And I got some really heated responses from people <laughs> saying, you know, people should be able to wear what they want and all that kind of thing. And I never, I never said they weren't, but they kind of told me that 
dress in the office has become a bit of a emotive issue and part of the sort of bringing yourself to work and, and ownership of who you are. Uh, certainly in uh, my uh, previous roles, um, I think most people know where I was, uh, uh, you know, head of, head of communications in a big magic circle firm, up until the pandemic, you wore a suit to work full yeah, stop. Yeah. Uh, you know, and you may have listened to time now and then, certainly, you know, pre pre COVID, and that's really changed. Mm. I think one of the big results of the pandemic that we don't hear so much about because it all seems to be about whether you're working from home or, or not um, is actually what you wear. Uh, I won't name them, but we have a, a, a big US uh, a global firm, really, client, and I went there to meet um, a couple of partners last week. Uh, one of them was in jeans and Converse. Mm. And that was, you know, this is a big corporate US firm. I was quite, quite pleasantly surprised by that. Uh, so, yeah, I think that this story is great. Uh, and I think Vido's come out of it well. But I also think that it's just indicative of, of, of where we are. So a little bit of fun, I think, to start with, but probably actually quite important. Yeah, definitely. Uh, next up is a story in the FT uh, about um, law firms, accountants and uh other types of professions like that that will be held to account for failure to prevent fraud uh, and um, money laundering uh, and accounting mistakes. So um, this is a really interesting one because it's coming as part of the uh, economic crime uh, bill uh, that's being talked about in Parliament right now. Um, I mean... I feel I don't know about you, but I feel that the wording so far that we've had in the press is not very clear. Yes, I think you're being very polite, Meg. Um, <laughs> I don't think our listeners are, are going to want to hear a forensic, no pun intended, uh, examination of all the details on this because there aren't really any. That's the problem. Uh, it's so vague. Mm. Uh, if you read what was a good piece by Robin Wright in the FT yesterday, it doesn't quite say as much. But you're looking through it, you just think, where's the detail? It actually reminds me of our corporate tax regime mm. uh, and all the, the you know, the hoo-ha, etc., with the big tech firms about who pays what tax, etc. The problem is, is there's just no certainty. There's no sort of empirical data and fact as a foundation for, for policy. It's quite subjective. And I think this looks to be like that here. And if you are a, a law firm uh, and you're, or an accountant uh, or even a casino, as it, as it <laughs> says here, where are, you, where are you supposed to start? Where is the distinct guidance? I know some of it is supposed to be coming down the line, uh, but it doesn't really seem to be particularly apparent at the moment. And um, I see lots of confusion um, uh, arising. And unfortunately, a bit like another story that we'll come on to in terms of slaps, which obviously is, is, is massive, a lot of this um, makes around optics. Um, and when you have vagueness, it all, people tend to act from the point of view as what does this look like, what I'm doing, rather than what is the right thing to do. Yeah. Am I following the rules and the guidance? And that's exactly where I think we'll get to here. And sadly, it's rather in keeping with quite a lot of conservative policy over the last few years. Yeah, it, I thought it was interesting just because there's no detail as to, you know, whether that covers only these firms if they were caught for you know failing to prevent money laundering for example or whether that would cover individual partners at those firms uh what the punishments might be and the sanctions uh what kind of what's the measure for for saying you know you've not done enough to prevent this from happening uh, yeah i agree i think that there's a lot of detail that is needed um at this stage but it's definitely one to keep an eye on. It's been talked about since October, and, and now we're getting slowly 
um, few few more details about this. Um, let's just see where it goes if it even passes the House of Lords. Uh, I think that's right. And from our you know our comms professional listeners, I think you, you'd look at this and think, well, you know, you can't just float an idea and say details to follow. Mm. We all know that in everything that we, we we do. You've got to have all your ducks in a row before you you know you, you come out with things. Otherwise, as a, a law firm or any kind of you know serious business. You just look as if you've got your trousers down, really, and I think that's a, that's that that's the case here, and they see it seems to keep happening across the piece. So as you say, wait and see, but it doesn't look great. Next up, as you just mentioned, uh, was a story in the La Gazette um, from Michael Cross. It was about slaps. So uh, there's been a lot of. Uh, talk about this this week. Basically, for those who may have missed the news, uh, there was a Tory MP who introduced a private member's bill uh, to make it harder to bring uh, slaps um, as a result of the Nadim Zahawi uh, issue with uh, Dan Nido. <laughs> um, so that's really interesting. And, and we know that currently there's 40 cases uh, being investigated by the SRA since May. Um, and and the head of the SRA said that it would take about 10 months to, to, to find any results in these cases. So we may see some sanctions uh, very soon. Um, and the SRA's review is going to follow very soon as well. So I think, um, yeah, it's, it's getting quite an interesting space to watch, I think. Yeah, I 100% I agree. And slaps or strategic lawsuits against public participation, said that all in one take, <laughs> uh, are definitely this year's big reputational issue. Last year, it was um, uh, obviously Russia and Ukraine and firms positioning in relation to to that. But, but, but this year, undoubtedly, it will be slaps. And again, like the previous story, it's optics again, isn't it? You know, being appearing to be a bully is not a good look. For, for any law firm or yeah. organisation, and I think this is what it comes, you know, comes down to really. Um, you know, law firms being seen to, to, to bully people that perhaps don't have quite the firepower to, to 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 fight back. Again, we don't want to go into all the detail here at the risk of you know boring people on a, a you know a Thursday afternoon. But <laughs> I think again, from a communications perspective, it's again about optics and looking as if you are bullying people that have a right to speak or a perceived right to speak or write something or express an opinion is never going to go down well. So I think actually there's a job of work to do to explain uh, what slaps are, but also what slaps aren't as well in terms of what type of behaviour is legitimate, what type of legal action is legitimate, why it's legitimate and what benefit it has. And I haven't seen that yet. And I think that's really key. So probably for the big litigation firms, uh, there is a job of work to do there from a reputation perspective to differentiate whatever it is that they do from, from, from slaps um, and to explain why um, you know, the actions are in the common, common good. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of litigation can, can get very you know, nasty very quickly regardless of the case. And I feel like when you, when you bring that sort of uh, litigation where you're going to seek to... Um, try to silence silence the other person with threats of you know defamation and whatnot i think it's going to be really hard for a lot of uh practitioners and 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 just the whole industry to kind of show the integrity of their work and saying well actually we're representing this client suing this person for defamation or whatever it may be 
and it's legitimate. Um, and 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 at that point, it's you know, say you go through a whole trial and you lose your case, you know, could people turn around and say, well, they did that to intimidate me and to silence me? I, I think it's a very tricky one, and I I would be keen to see the SRA's review when it comes out in a few weeks, hopefully. Yeah. Um, is is definitely one to watch, as you said. I mean, it, it could be a really, really difficult reputational issue for a lot of firms out there. I, I think so. And the other practical point, it, it, it's a bit like super injunctions, isn't it? That you can't super injunct anonymous people on social media. Uh, so, you know, your slap, whether it's right or wrong, may succeed in the point of view of silencing a, I don't know, a national or a business journalist. But you're not gonna you're not gonna be able to silence Twitter. Yeah. Or, Whatever you know, whatever it might be, um, and so the reputational points that we've we've, we've talked about here uh, are, are are not necessarily going to be enough to save the the objective behind them, which is to protect anonymity, whatever it whatever it might be, because because of the way that social media works. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, really interesting developments in that space for sure. Uh, if I if I were some of the firms that are known to, to have brought these kinds of cases forward, uh, I'd be panicking right now. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, let's see what comes of that. Uh, next story was a story by Catherine Baxi in the Times uh, about uh, family courts allowing journalists to come and report on the proceedings. Um, this was an interesting one because it's it's going to be in a one-year trial uh, kind of phase at three different courts. Uh, that's my understanding. And um, there will be very clear rules as to uh, anonymity rules and that kind, of, that kind of stuff, which is quite key to, to make sure that, you know, it's not too invasive, I guess, for for people um, involved in those cases um, but I mean what are your thoughts on this one so, so I think the first thing that springs to mind is the pilot um, I think as you've touched on they deliberately not gone sort of for the big 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 urban centers like London or, or yeah. you know or, or, or Glasgow and I think that's really smart yeah I think they've gone for Leeds Cardiff and, and Carlisle according to the, the piece and that it just seems to be you know good thinking let's see how it goes when you haven't got the media's glare um, on, on those particular courts. And as you say, the rules are, um, are, are, are fine. My own view is what will happen is in time where the press will be really interested is high-profile divorces. Everybody wants to read about a high-profile divorce. Mm. Everybody wants to look at the numbers involved, at sort of exotic people taking each other to court. You know, that's kind of... It's just tittle-tattle, and it's but it's it's interesting, and it sells it sells newspapers, doesn't it? And it I does. Think, I think that's this is this is where the attention will be after too long. So I guess the learning from this is, you know, if you are a, a celebrity or you're going through a high point or or you're a very high net worth individual, and you're going through or about to uh, go to the courts for the, with a contentious divorce, you may well have in time a lot more, um, you know, media attention on you than even you do now so if you're going to do it i would do it do it quickly before these rules kind of kick in <laughs> kick, kick in nationwide but it was a good and interesting piece i thought yeah really interesting and then i mean from you know my former journalistic background i mean i i just worry that um 
say you've got reporters from tabloids and things like that, because that's what it will be uh, <laughs> going to, to court, you know, uh, to, to follow these cases. And, and these types of cases are already quite heartbreaking and difficult for the, the individuals, but also for the legal teams. Uh, and I just wonder if the presence of the media might make it worse, because even though you might, it might give you some transparency, I mean, I think I think it's going to be a very difficult thing to balance, and I'm not sure. We'll see how the pilot works, but I think you need to have some extremely strict rules around the reporting of these events, just like you have in criminal courts, yeah. uh, that really structure best journalist practice um, in those cases. Because otherwise, reputationally, it's going to be very hard to manage emotionally as well for for the clients and the legal teams. Yeah, the, the other practical point is, again, we're right at the bottom of the piece, it talks about reporters actually will be able to be provided with copies of some court papers, including some outlines, skeleton arguments, summaries and chronologies. That's quite a lot of information. It is. Isn't it? And, and a lot of it will be very salacious as well because exactly. it's people's personal lives. Um, so I, I just think it's a very risky thing to do. And I wonder if actually... Um, people might be more keen to go towards mediation where possible so that it's less public. Because um, you'll have celebrity divorces and things like that, but you have to think you you will also find some, you know, people that are not known at all but have some crazy allegations against their ex. You know what I mean? So I think, yeah. Um, it's a deterrent, is what you're saying, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Which it yeah. probably is. Uh, so I think you'll still need a lawyer regardless, but I, I don't know if people will be more keen to go to court because of that and they might actually try to settle, reach an agreement outside of court or, or in some kind of way. So it, it's an interesting one. I'd be keen to hear from um, family lawyers on, on, on these issues. Uh, it's, it's an interesting one. Uh, last story of the day was uh, Katie Dowell's Horizon piece from today, actually, uh, where she talks about um, how, well, apparently it seems that this year, you know, instead of just having uh, a lot of individual partner moves, you instead have a lot of team moves. Uh, I mean, I would argue that we've seen that a lot in previous years. I don't think it's a new kind of trend, but um, it is interesting that the amount of money that these firms are willing to put on the table to, to have a whole team join and then usually be on contracts for a few years at a certain salary. Uh, it brings a whole lot of, like a lot of business, sure, but, but I think there's a lot of challenges with that package too. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the plug and play approach, isn't it? You know, you get a nice shiny team who do an area of law that you don't do as mm. a firm or you do it only a little bit, you snap them all up, you put them in your office, plug them in and, and off they go. That's the, that's really the idea, isn't it? Yeah. And there is a, you know, there's a lot of business sense for that uh, because you're getting results pretty, pretty quickly. And if you look at the example that Katie gives, I think she talks about Deloitte um, taking a full partner team from Shoesmiths um, in, in, in real estate. And I would have thought that's the um, thinking there you know, just Deloitte legal moving into real estate for the first for the first time, but but to my mind the big issue is culture, isn't it? You know, if you hire a team, I know that you know they're a good fit in terms of the way they go about things, um, processes, approach, great. But if there's any discrepancies there, 
boy, it's going to come out quickly, isn't it? Compared <laughs> yeah. to if you just hire one person to do one, one, one particular thing. And, you know, you can imagine if you're a, I don't want to talk about Deloitte or Seasmith, but if you are a firm doing something similar and you hire a team of, you know, four, four or so partners and some associates and, you, and, and just culturally it's not really quite working out, mm. you've got quite a big problem there because you've sold something shiny and new to, to clients. And yet, culturally, internally, you're you know you're you're getting some battles, and it's it's going to be a little bit of a headache. It's a bit almost like a merger that doesn't work for, yeah. for cultural reasons. Very 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 similar. So, I think quite risky. One thing that's interesting for our you know uh, PR business services comms listeners was the move of a team of business development professionals uh, from Cooley to Free Frank at the end of last year, and that was the first time that we'd seen something similar on business services and don't forget that's half a law firm's people is mm. business services not just lawyers yeah that you know is super interesting um i'd never heard of anything like that before um you know with i have 15 or so years of working in-house in, in law firms and i've never seen more than one person join a firm from another at any any given time and that's really really interesting so let's keep an eye on whether there are any more sort of communications teams or bd teams or crm teams or pitch teams moving on mass from one firm to another I thought that was quite an interesting quite an interesting trend yeah i mean uh, uh, you know it's quite surprising in a way because um I can understand why a team of lawyers would move, but a team of BD people, it, it, it doesn't feel the same way. I don't know why. I, don't, I can't really explain it, but it, it doesn't feel like when you're in BD, you, you would want to stick with the same team forever. Usually you, you see a lot of them jumping around every couple or three years or, or so, something like that. So, yeah, I don't um, agree, you know. I don't agree. Do you not I, agree? Okay. I think, if I, you know, I think back <laughs> to my previous firm, I was part of a really, really good team. Mm. If there had been some move to another Magic Circle firm or a big US firm that was mooted, I would have been potentially, I would have seen the, the merits of it. Um, again, it's, it's, it's culture. If you hire one person and they're culturally and not aligned, with yeah. you, it's sort of on them a bit, isn't it, to, to, to sort it out and to, be, to become more culturally aligned with the organisation they've joined. If you've hired four partners, three associates and a couple of secretaries, they've come over and they're not really culturally alive, then it's kind of on you to, 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 to make them settle in. So again, so many mergers and, and tie-ups and things fail, not because of work synergies or lack of synergies, just about behavior and, and, and culture and people falling out on a human level. Definitely, I mean, you know, I hear this stuff all the time, you know, like, I mean, not too long ago, I did hear a story about, you know, some, team that had moved to from a US firm to Transatlantic one a few years ago and um, the work that they did was very different to the work that the kind of partners at the the firm that they joined did and even just culturally in terms of the the some of the partners there and, and the rest of the team were kind of brought up in the same organization and then you have these guys coming in that are on a much higher salary for you know, say four years uh, contracted, and, and and it just brought a lot of tension. Uh, so yeah, as you say, culturally, it's so easy to mess it up in a way, um, and it's really tricky. And, and sometimes you just think, you know, you're investing so much into a team, but uh, are you investing as much into making sure that it's the the transition into from their firm to the new firm is you know, really smooth and that they actually get along with everyone and kind of are on the same page with everyone. And I think a lot of firms 
truly lack that kind of skill of being able to integrate new people into the wider group. Um, so it, it's just really, really interesting. And for the BD services, I mean, do you think that's going to be a trend that we're going to see for BD? I don't know. I'm just really interested in it. It would be fascinating if, it, if it, yeah. you know, if it did. It's it's the first and last example that I've I've heard. Um, you know, we as as Byfield are often asked when people have vacancies and things if we know people and we sometimes help out where we can. But I've not had anybody ask me if I know a good team that would be willing to up sticks and join one firm to a to another. But I keep you posted on on that one. Uh, you you also think about kind of policies and procedures and things. You know, your teams will have their own policies and ways of doing things. Not least dress code. Back to our first story. You know, you don't really want to be, you know, at a relaxed firm where you can rock up in jeans and a, you know, a denim shirt, and suddenly you have to go to another firm where you're suited and booted. Yeah. Uh, or dress for Annabelle's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I would be keen to hear from recruiters about this because if it does become a trend, then there's definitely a market for them too, instead of just solely focusing on associates and partners to now actually do team moves for BD. And that would be really interesting, actually. I think that, that there's definitely an opportunity there for a lot of recruiters. But anyway, um, do you have anything else you want to talk about or add to any of these stories we've discussed? Not really. I, I, I think that what's really interesting at the moment is the mood music, isn't it, about the economy. Uh, and how that's playing out in the sector. And it does seem to be precarious. Mm. Certainly my paper of choice in the morning is the Times. And uh, I've noticed over the past week, you know, you, you're seeing positive economic on one data on one day. So you go to work with a spring in your step and you're seeing less than positive long-term forecasts on the IMF or similar on the next <laughs> day. So you're a bit downbeat. And as a leader of a business, you sort of take these things reasonably seriously because yeah. you have to plan going forward. and. Uh, I think we're still at a point where people are cautiously optimistic that it might not be that bad, uh, and I, I certainly, I certainly hope that's the case. And yeah. people that I speak to are, are 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 feeling reasonably positive. And you know, certainly towards the end of last year, people were a little bit pretty worried about cost of living crisis, all that all that kind of thing. And some of that, from a corporate stroke professional services perspective, seems to be slightly less acute than than it felt before Christmas. So watch this space. Yeah, definitely. Well, anyway, thank you for uh, for joining me today. Uh, it was a pleasure, as always. And uh, to the listeners, uh, thank you for joining us every week. Uh, make sure you uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Uh, and we will be back next week for another episode. You've been listening to Council Culture the Business of Law podcast brought to you by Byfield. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and join us again next week where we'll be discussing some more of the biggest stories in the legal sector.